Good morning, North Boulevard. Those of you online, good morning. Those of you out in the foyer, we have chairs in the foyer. How cool. Glad you're with us today. It's a special time to be at North Boulevard. I know yesterday we had, well, the number I heard was like 300 people showed up for the Colors Conference from more than 20 different churches. And that's just like something the uh, women's ministry here has been doing or various members. It's a big deal. It's really cool. You need to go to that if you haven't been to it. Also, this week we have the concrete port at the West Campus. And I think this coming week, the trusses start to go up. So in the next several months, it's going to start looking like a building. That thing is specced for 500 people in the auditorium. And I'm, I'm betting, well, not really because I can't do that as a minister, um, <laughs> at least not publicly. Uh, there'll be a thousand people opening day. That's my guess. It's a great time to be at North Boulevard. Let me read a text to you. That's all right. You can clap. Yep. Romans 6 will set the stage for today, verses 3, 4, and 5. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have a new life. For if we have been united with him in death, a death like his, we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Every weekday in the U.S., hundreds and hundreds of couples find themselves in small claims court asking a judge to sort out who has to pay the last three electric bills, who gets the television, and who has to pay for the Disney trip. In each case, what they're trying to do is sort out how you can separate when you never really were joined. Now, these are individuals who chose to try to take the blessings of a committed relationship without the responsibilities of a committed relationship. And it actually tips you off to one of the, I think, one of the great problems we have in North America, which is many of us in North America want all the blessings of a commitment, all the blessings of faithfulness, in this case, marriage, but we don't want the responsibilities that come with it. That might explain why there's so much credit card debt in the U.S. It might explain why there's so many defaults, why so many people are so slow to pay their rent, or why it is that your small group can host a big barbecue this Friday night. All 20 people will say they'll be there, and only six show up. That it actually tells you something like, and by the way, that didn't happen to me, so if you're thinking, wow, he really stung his small group, I didn't. But it happens, right? If I listen to this, I read this the other day that um, more than 4 million Americans, U.S., more than 4 million Americans 50 years old and older are living together as husband and wife, but who are not married. So you'd think when you reach my age, you'd say, no, I think let's go on and seal the deal here and get the RV and all that sort of stuff. But it just indicates that a lot of us want the blessings that you would get in a commitment, but we don't want the responsibilities. And I want to say this is true spiritually for North Americans, that most of us want the benefits of Jesus, right? We want to be able to pray to Jesus whenever times are hard. When we have a problem, we beg him, please intervene, I'll do anything for you. But we don't want the responsibility that comes from having to follow him. And it's actually a big problem because Jesus teaches us that if you want his blessings, you have to do life his way. That is... I'll, I'll unpack this a little bit later so it might sound a little flippant. I don't mean it so. Jesus is okay dating you, 
but he wants to marry you. And actually, you don't get the benefits of marriage until you say, I do with Jesus. He expects a once and for all commitment to him. If you don't make a once and for all commitment to him, you're not saved. You can hang out with him all you want to. He invites you to come hang out. He invites you to come sit at the table, explore, listen, sort things out, weigh things, test things. But at some point, he expects you to make a commitment to him, a pledge. He says it multiple times. The Bible says it multiple times and in multiple ways. If you want to be my disciple, he says, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. It's okay to shop a little while, but you got to buy at some point. It's okay to be on the journey or on the quest, but at some point, you need to arrive at your destiny. He puts it this way in Luke 14. Those of you who do not give up anything, everything cannot be my disciples. Or chapter 16 of Luke's gospel. You can't serve two masters. By the way, he doesn't say there, I don't want you to try. He says it's not possible to do it. If you're not serving Jesus as your master, you're serving somebody else. Everybody is serving somebody. What he's trying to teach us is after you've dated, after you've flirted, after you've thought about it, Make a commitment, a once-in-a-lifetime commitment to Jesus. If you want your plans established by God, what must you do first? We like the second half of this, right? I like the idea that God is guiding my life gently through whatever comes and so forth and so forth. The part I don't like is that I have to commit to the Lord. This is a real problem. And it's one I want to address today. And here's what I want to say. In the Bible... We're taught that when you are ready to make a once-in-a-lifetime pledge to Jesus, you do it through baptism. I'll say that again. Baptism is the means through which you make a once-in-a-lifetime pledge to King Jesus. Let's talk about it a second. And let me just remind you that when you look in Scripture, you'll discover the Bible has a lot to say about baptism. A lot of churches don't talk a whole lot about it. There's been some controversy through the years. In fact, Baptism has been a, quite a controversial subject in Protestantism and now in evangelicalism. But it's actually a very rich subject and one that's treated many times, over a hundred times just in the New Testament. And the Old Testament had lots of references to baptism as well, just a slightly different than what we're used to. Let me say this. When you walk through the New Testament, you will discover that the norm, the norm repeated over and over again, the norm, or shall I say the normative way for you to respond to Jesus by saying, I am ready to give you my life is through baptism. All four gospels start with baptism. All four of them do. They start with a guy named John, um, John the something. Yeah, a baptizer. They all start with John the baptizer. By the way, I love Baptists. I love the Baptist church. Can't wait to share heaven with Baptists. But John wasn't a Baptist. That's just a bad translation. He was a baptizer. What he did was went out and baptized people. And the Gospels all start that way. In fact, who is baptized but Jesus himself? And he's baptized, the Bible says, in order to establish the rightness of baptism. So if I want to follow Jesus, I'm going to be baptized. And I want to share this with you. So here's what I was saying. Water is a common image for purification in many religions. In the Old Testament, water was used to purify uh, uh, kitchen utensils, walls, houses. Certain times of the month, women were expected to be purified by water. Men were expected at certain times of the month to be purified by water. These are pictures of baptistries in Jerusalem. You may not know this, but right outside the temple in the city of Jerusalem, in Jesus' day, 
there were probably something in the vicinity of 100 baptistries built into it. To go into the temple, first you had to go into a baptistry. Once you went into the baptistry, this is one of the baptistries, they were called mikvot, the plural, or mikvah, singular. Once you went into the baptistry and baptized yourself, then you could go into the temple. But you could not enter the temple unless you were first baptized. So when we start reading about baptism in the ministry of John, or when we see Jesus being baptized, or when we see baptism in Acts, which we're about to see lots of examples, most people were familiar with this. That it was a, an act that at least symbolically purified you to enter into the presence of God. So just before Jesus ascends back to heaven, he meets with the apostles and he says to them, I want you to go make disciples and this is what I want you to do. This is that decisive moment I want you to bring disciples to. Let me say it again because maybe we're all kind of got a little lost on the battery thing. When you decide it's time to be saved, you need to be baptized. That's the culminating moment to which the Bible points. So when Jesus says, go make disciples, he orders us to baptize people. Go make disciples and baptize them. That's the moment. And when we walk through the book of Acts, the normative response to the gospel is baptism. So in Acts chapter 2. The question is raised as Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. What must we do? What do we need to do? What's our salvation plan? And Peter doesn't say, well, there's nothing you can do. He doesn't say the sinner's prayer. There are a lot of things he could have said, but here's what he says. You need to repent and you need to be baptized. Those are the two things you must do, he says. Only a few verses later, we see 3,000 were baptized. Notice they count baptisms. I think it's really important. They didn't count decisions. That's kind of our module. How many decisions for Christ were made? You hear that after a crusade. How many decisions for Christ? It's not in the Bible. They don't count decisions. They count baptisms. Because they understood that if you wanted to be saved, you were going to be baptized. It was just a non-sequitur. I mean, it was a given. Not a non-sequitur. It's a non-sequitur not to do it. And so we find out a little bit later in chapter 8, when Philip goes, he preaches in Samaria. As soon as he preaches the gospel, we find out they were all baptized, men and women. And only a few verses later, he's down in the Gaza Strip. He's with a guy who's in a chariot. He preaches Jesus to the guy in the chariot. And what's the question this guy raises? He preaches Jesus. And watch what the guy says. After he hears about Jesus, he says, hey, I want to be baptized. Now, what does that tell you about a sermon on Jesus? It tells you that a sermon on Jesus is not complete if you didn't talk about baptism. Because when he preaches Jesus, the automatic response is, can I get baptized? In Acts chapter 9, when Paul or Saul is converted, he's Saul at this point, he is immediately told to get up and to be baptized. In chapter 10, when the first Gentile is converted to the Christian faith, they see that he gets the Holy Spirit. First, this guy gets the Holy Spirit. Peter's sitting there. He says, oh, my goodness, he has the Holy Spirit. There's nothing I can do now but baptize him. The automatic normative response to the preaching of the gospel is you baptize people. Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are in Philippi, they preach to this woman who's selling the color purple, which is a very rare, difficult color to extract in uh, Jesus' day. And as soon as they preach, she and her whole household were what? baptized. Again, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody, but you don't see them. They're not counting decisions for Christ. They're not asking them to raise their hand. They're not asking Jesus into their heart. They're being baptized. In the same chapter, Paul and Silas are in prison. The Holy Spirit opens the prison doors up. They come out. The jailer assumes they've escaped. He's ready to kill himself. They say, don't kill yourself. 
Let's go home. And they teach the gospel. And immediately, he and everybody in his household were baptized. In chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth. When he preaches the gospel, all of, not all, but many of those who were there were baptized in chapter 19. These guys in 19, they had been baptized, but they were baptized only in John's ministry. And they don't know anything about the Holy Spirit, so Paul said, mm, got to do it again. Which tells you again how important this doctrine is. And Paul, when he recounts his conversion experience, chapter 22 of the book of Acts, he says that as I was coming into Damascus, I saw this vision of Jesus. He tells the whole story. And he says, I was told to rise up, be baptized, and get my sins washed away. In each of these cases, what we ought to see is that people date, date, they court Jesus. Which is okay, it's okay to date Jesus. But when you get ready to be saved, when you're ready to make a transaction that changes you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you need to be baptized. Now why? Well, I want to show you 12, oh, I did it again, second service. I forgot, you're not supposed to say the number of points you're about to do because everybody does a mental countdown. And if the first one goes like six minutes, they think, oh, six times 12. We're going to be here another 72 minutes. I wasn't going to say 12, it just keeps slipping out because it's a holy number. Okay, it'll be fast, but I'm going to show you a certain number. It may not even be 12. I may have, that could be, I just said that in my spare time. It could have been something else. I want to show you biblical descriptions of baptism, and here's what I want to be careful not to do. On the one hand, by the way, I'm just going to show you biblical descriptions. I'm going to do very little theology. I'm going to tell you why. Once you start to do theology, you inevitably move into a creative task that you're over instead of the Bible. So I'm going to give you just plain statements from the Bible. If you don't like these statements, I invite you to talk to God about it. These aren't my statements. I didn't write them. I believe them, but I didn't write them. I don't want to overstate baptism. So you may be surprised to know that probably about 95% of the world's Christians believe baptism is necessary for salvation. 95%. If you're thinking to yourself, well, none of my friends do, that's because you live in the American South where there are not many Orthodox Christians and not many Catholic Christians. But the Catholic Church and all the Orthodox churches teach that baptism is essential to salvation, and that's about 90% of world Christianity. We just have small arguments in the little evangelical world of the American South, those of us who are in the South. Not knocking, I'm just saying. I don't want to overstate baptism, and I'll show you why in a moment, because I don't want us to be known because we're baptizers. I want us to be known because we follow Jesus. But baptism is an essential part of that. But I also don't want to understate baptism. Because the people that I hang with, at least in ministry, at least in the world of the churches of Christ, oftentimes want to downplay baptism because it embarrasses us. It feels like we're dividing ourselves from everyone else. Like if we just kind of downplay baptism, then we can all, you know, sit in a circle and love on each other and everybody will be okay. But that's ignoring the clear teachings of Scripture, and we can't do that. So we don't want to overstate it, but we also don't want to understate it. And the best way, I think, for us to navigate between this it's just to let the Bible speak for itself. Matthew 28, some of these texts we've already used. By the way, I know I'm using a lot of Scripture. Uh, if you want access to this PowerPoint later, just let us know in the office and we'll get you a copy of it so you have a copy of the Scriptures. Jesus says, first of all, that when we baptize, when we make disciples baptize, we baptize people into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it looks to an English-speaking person 
that Jesus might be saying we baptize by the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we do that. We do baptize by the authority of, but that's not what the grammar of this sentence means. The grammar of this sentence means when we baptize, we baptize into a relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, in the Bible, baptism puts you in a right relationship with God. That's what Matthew 28 clearly says. John 3, verses 3 and 5. We are taught by Jesus as he's speaking to Nicodemus that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born of water and born of the Spirit. So, the second description of baptism in the Scripture is that baptism is a form of rebirth. It's a way to be born again. I've already referenced this woman in Acts 22 when Paul talks about his baptism. He says that in his baptism, he washed away his sins. So, in baptism, we have our sins washed away. I just want to pause and say, I'm just quoting the Scripture. So, if you're kind of thinking, I don't, you know, I don't want to go this direction and so forth, your argument is not with me. Acts chapter 2, we see several things here. When Peter preaches baptism, he says, repent and be baptized. You will receive the gift of the Holy, excuse me, that's the second one I'll show you. The first one is, you will be forgiven of your sins. Baptism is for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, baptism gives us our forgiveness. But in that text, we also learn that when we're baptized, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in baptism, we receive forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. I hope you're beginning to see how important baptism is and why it's mentioned well over a hundred times in the New Testament. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, we're all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. I've summarized it this way, upon baptism, we all enter the one body of Jesus. Colossians 2, there's several things here I'll show you. In Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul compares Christian baptism to Jewish circumcision. Just a sentence or two on that. In order to enter the covenant of Judaism, a young boy had to be circumcised in Judaism. Until you were circumcised, you were not a, a ben Torah, a son of the Torah, a son of the, a son of the command. Circumcision was the sign that you are now in the covenant of God. In fact, it was more than a sign. I want to be careful with this. It was more than a sign. It was a sign that affected the very thing that it pointed to. It's not how we normally think about signs. If you're coming in from Las Casas and you see a sign out there that says Murfreesboro five miles away, you would say to yourself, well, the sign's not Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro is down the road. But that's not exactly what signs were in the New Testament. Oftentimes in the New Testament, the sign participated in the very thing it indicated. So circumcision was not just a sign that you were in the covenant. It was the only way to get into the covenant. It was a sign that actually affected the very thing it described. And Paul says about circumcision that we have one too, and it's baptism. That, that's our Christian circumcision. That's how we actually get inside of Christ. You enter the covenant with Jesus in your baptism. In the same text, he says that in baptism, we get buried with Jesus. So if you want to be buried with Jesus... I'm not knocking it. I'm not trying to be mean. I don't, I don't want to like ridicule. I don't want to ridicule anybody. So I don't mean to be ridiculing people. But Paul doesn't say if you want to get counted in the burial of Jesus, raise your hand and indicate a decision. He says get baptized. That baptism is the act of being buried with Jesus. And then a little bit later, baptism is the act of being raised up from the dead with Jesus. In Colossians, the third chapter, Paul says, when we're baptized, we clothe ourselves with Christ. So in baptism, we get clothed with Jesus. You see, we're down to only two now. 
Paul says in Romans 6, the text I opened up with, through baptism we live a new life. How many of you want to live a new life? If you want to live a new life, what do you do? In this text, you're baptized. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter's talking about how the floodwaters saved planet Earth, lifted the ark and saved Noah and the animals. And then he says about the floodwaters, that's, that's like baptism, he says. That in the same way, baptism now saves you. By the way, I just want to make sure you hear that. If I say that baptism saves you, I want you to know that is a direct, unadulterated quote from the Bible. Baptism saves you. That's what Peter says. So when we want to talk about baptism and we say that baptism, it's that culminating moment. It's that moment when you say, all right, I've dated him long enough. I'm going to make a full commitment. Now you see why baptism matters. And who among us wants to say, yeah, I saw all those verses, but I don't think baptism matters. Would you really want to be, would you really want to say that to God? Man, I can understand somebody not understanding it. Maybe they were never taught it. Maybe their church didn't know about it or just, they just didn't get their brain around it. But who listens to these scriptures and then says it doesn't matter? Who wants to say that? I mean, it mattered enough to God that he threw it in there 100 times in the New Testament. And so, when you guys are ready, I'll lean this way because we have younger people who may or may not have made a decision yet. Younger people who've probably been dating, if your parents will let you. Jesus, I mean. And when you're ready to get married, you need to be baptized. That's what you do. And he's okay with you dating him. He really is. He's okay with you exploring he wants you to know him before you make this commitment. In fact, the matter is, let me go on record as saying, don't baptize too soon. You know why? Because the worst sin you can commit is to turn your back on your baptism. That's the worst sin you can commit. And so I don't want to baptize anybody until I know they understand the cost. Because once you make that public declaration, if you turn your back the way Peter says it, you're worse than a dog going back and eating its vomit. You're worse than a pig that got washed and goes back to the mud. So count the cost. But once you say, I want the full blessings of following Jesus, then you need to make the full decision, committing to him in Scripture, in baptism. Now, let me just talk about a few things that I think some objections that might have come to some of your minds. I just want to deal with them really quickly. And I want to say this before I get into this. There, there, there's so many, there's so much theology about baptism. By the way, it's a very rich theology. That it's hard to do in a short sermon. You get that. Um, a small group, a couple of guys, Tony Twist, who's the president of TCM University in Vienna, Austria, Bobby Harrington, who's the lead pastor at uh, Harpeth Christian Church, and I put together a book on baptism a couple of years ago. And I'm, we're making that book available at North Boulevard this morning. You can go online and get it, I think. But we also have it in the foyer. And let me say this, I'm getting nothing out of the book. I, get, I take no money for it. In fact, the matter is, the book's $5. I, I think it's maybe down this way, for those of you who are here in person. And if you can't afford it, I'll pay, I'll buy your book. Just tell them, put it on David's tab. But I just want you to have some resources that deal with some of the questions surrounding baptism. And obviously I believe in this one because I was one of the authors who put together books. A very short book, easy read, but it unpacks, I think, a lot of information that you, a lot of questions you might have about baptism. Now let me talk about some of the, what I consider to be baptismal or salvific mistakes. The first one is replacing baptism with a sinner's prayer. 
Let me say this. I've said the sinner's prayer, and it's a great prayer. I hope you pray it. I hope you pray, Lord, come into my heart. I am sorry for the life I've lived. I want to live a new kind of life. If you say that prayer, God bless you. It's a great prayer. But it does not take the place of baptism. When people in the book of Acts got to the moment of decision, they didn't say the sinner's prayer. You know how I know that? Because a sinner's prayer is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's not in there. When they got to the moment of decision in the Bible, they were baptized. A baptism that was an outward display to the whole world. Y'all know that the, the, the work we're doing right now in the global south, we're doing all the way from West Africa now all the way to East Africa. Y'all may not know this. We've got guys perched to go into the Middle East with the gospel. We're going we're gonna to flip the country of Iran for, for Jesus before it's over with. We're going to do it. It's going to happen. God's going to do it. But when those people make a decision to be baptized, they put their life on the line. You don't think the local imam knows that you were baptized? It's a public declaration that says, this is who I am. It's my line in the sand. So help me God, I will not back down. That's what baptism is. Baptism serves that role. So don't replace baptism with the sinner's prayers. not in the Bible. Why would you pick something that's not in the Bible as the most critical question of life? The most critical question you will ever ask, what must I do to be saved? And you pick something that's not even in the Bible? Especially when the Bible is replete with answers. It just says. Now, if that's underselling baptism, let me address overselling baptism. This is a little trickier because there's a, a lot of theology that can be done on this. But let me put it this way. Believing in mere baptismal regeneration is not biblical. So you're thinking, what does that mean? Well, baptismal regeneration is the doctrine that says baptism itself affects your salvation. That is, it brings about your salvation. Okay, there's some truth to that. Remember, we looked at 1 Peter. But the problem with that is it gives too much power to baptism. Think about it. In the, in the, the, the world of Christianity... Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Presbyterian, Anglican, and so forth. By the way, I love them all. I expect to share heaven with them. I'm not judging people, but I'm just saying, if you baptize a baby, I know that you believe in baptismal regeneration. You believe baptism is effective even when the Bible doesn't believe it. Here's how I know that. In the Bible, only people who put faith in Jesus could be baptized. I guarantee you the baby that got sprinkled this morning did not want to do it. And they don't believe in Jesus. They only believe in like two things, babies, as far as I can tell. They don't believe in anything. Why in the world would you baptize them? Now you're overstating baptism. Now you're saying baptism works even if you don't want it to work. Now baptism's almost like a magical token. It's like Aladdin's lamp. You rub it and you get salvation even if you didn't want it. Now I understand how most of these are national churches. So if you think about it, infant baptism goes with national churches. Presbyterian Church, the National Church of Ireland, also of Scotland, Roman Catholic Church, for a long time, the National Church of Europe. Every Orthodox Church has its own National Church of Russian Orthodox, uh, Armenian Orthodox, and so forth, Syriac, uh, Coptic, so forth. In each case, what they're saying is, you get saved even if you don't want to. But they will say this, and I'm not trying to be fair to them, when you get older, we will confirm the faith you didn't have when we baptized you. That's confirmation. It's an effort to say, we do know faith matters, but we'll wait till you get older and you can have faith before we confirm the faith, but we'll go on and baptize you now. That's just not in the Bible. 
In the Bible, if you want to be baptized, you must first put faith in Jesus. Because I remind you that at the end of the day, it is the faith that saves. So let me put it this way. Baptism is neither a work that saves, nor is it a mere sign or a mere symbol that you are already saved. I think the best way to think of it is that baptism is the point at which Jesus saves by grace through faith. Let me give you a short illustration. This is my son and his lovely bride at their wedding in 2018. By the way, we found this free venue on Hilton Head Beach, which is really cool. It's free if you have friends who have a house on Hilton Head Beach, by the way. And so as we're doing the wedding, let me just think it out with you for a moment. At the wedding, I got to do their wedding, John and Mackenzie did not start loving each other at that wedding. The wedding didn't make them love each other more. The wedding didn't highlight their love. You know, they had fallen in love months before, or I don't know how long before, but long enough before. By the way, um, I will say this about, I think I've said this before, but I, one of the proudest moments was when they came to Julie and me and said, we're going to get married. Which, by the way, I think they said, we're going to get married. And I said, that's fine, you know, take a year or so. They said, no, we're thinking more like four or five months. And then two weeks later, they said, now we're thinking about three weeks now. So, um, but I, I knew, I admired them when they sat down. And Mackenzie said to me, she said, I knew John would be the right husband for me when he said, I want you to know you will never be first in my life. Jesus will always be first. And if you're not okay with that, let's not get married. How about that? That makes the daddy proud. But let me say this. It wasn't the wedding that made them love each other. All the wedding did was sealed the covenant. It sealed the covenant. They were already in love with each other. They'd already been dating. They were already planning to live together. They have children. They're already planning to have children together. All those things were already there. But I'm here to tell you in the law of the state, the laws of the state of South Carolina in that case, or in Tennessee, or now in Oregon, or in federal law, they were not married until I had them say, I do, put the ring on, and then I proclaim them husband and wife. You know how serious that is? Just wait just a second. Imagine if at this moment, because I hadn't said, I now pronounce your husband and wife yet. Imagine if John said at this moment, ah, you know what, it's a bad idea, and turned and walked away. Would John have legally, would, excuse me, Mackenzie have legally had access to Jonathan's property? Nope. She couldn't touch his property. You know why? Because they weren't married. After I said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and John said, I, I've changed my mind, Mackenzie could have taken half of everything John had. Six seconds later, you know why? Because at the wedding, they solemnified the covenant they were already working on. The state even acknowledges that. Baptism functions that way for us. It's not the wedding that makes you believe in Jesus. It's not the baptism that makes you believe in Jesus. But it is at that point that you enter the covenant with them. It's at that point that you say, I now accept you as my husband and I will be your bride. That's why baptism is so important. And by the way, it's so beautiful in baptism itself. In baptism are all these symbols of the Christian faith. Baptized into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity's in there. Baptized by the authority of Jesus, the Lordship of Jesus. Baptized because I'm a sinner, the sinfulness of humanity. Buried with Jesus, raised from the dead. The whole gospel stories in baptism. Pointing forward to a final resurrection of the dead all wrapped up in that beautiful symbol of baptism where you get to say to the whole world, one reason why we like to do them publicly, 
You get to say to the whole world, from this moment forward, I belong to him. Let me show you. I'll go, go quickly. A few other mistakes. Failure to launch is one. Some of you are older. You may not have heard this phrase before. If you've got a 22-year-old living in your basement playing video games, that's called failure to launch. <laughs> that's where someone is circling Jesus endlessly and they will not make a decision. And here's what I want to say. I'm going to say it again. I'll say it to teenagers again. I'm not picking on y'all. I don't pick on y'all. Circle them until you get it. But circling is not enough. At some point, you have to make a decision. I'm in or I'm out. You have to make a decision. And by the way, in case you didn't know it, if you don't make that decision, that was a decision. You just made a decision by not making one. You made a decision to stay out. And so what I want to suggest is that after we've dated and courted and flirted and craved the blessings that he offers, get off the launching pad. Bring that journey home. Act on it. Make a commitment. And then there's this one, whataboutism, has been brought up lately in politics quite a bit this term. This is where someone says, okay, okay, I see what you say about baptism, but what about my friend at that church? Or what about the thief on the cross? Or what about so-and-so? They weren't baptized. What are you going to say about them? I'll give you a real easy answer. I'll let them and God deal with that. They and God can sort all that out. God's a great judge. He's going to be merciful to me. I expect God to be merciful to others. God can save whomever he chooses. But let me tell you this. He did not give me permission to compromise what he told me to do on baptism. He can compromise if he wants to, and maybe it's not compromise if he does it. If God wants to say, hey, I'm waving baptism. Imagine what that line will be like in heaven, you know, when they turn around and shout, hey, he's waving baptism, free pass. It was a joke. It was really funny when I thought it up. God can wave it if he wants to, but he didn't tell me I could. He doesn't give us the right to wave his commands. He doesn't give us the authority to say, yeah, 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 we don't want to do that because it might bother somebody. Why don't we just teach and practice what the scriptures say? Just teach and practice what the scriptures say and discover the blessing that comes with it. My last one is refusing to live a baptized life. It's an interesting thing that happens in the original language of the New Testament. Original language of the New Testament was Greek, almost all exclusively Greek. Maybe a few Latin and Aramaic terms thrown in here or there, but mostly Greek. And there were two, well, there were lots of words available for what we would call baptism. But the two common ones in the days of the New Testament were the words bapto. You see our word baptism comes from these words. And the word baptizo. So both, they're very similar words, but they're quite different in one, dis, uh, one respect. Bapto just means to dip something and pull it out. Think about chips and salsa. So, you know, we go out to eat chips and salsa, and Rachel dips, pulls it out, and eats it. I scoop, which is a very reasonable thing to do. <laughs> Julie is like, she mixes paint. It's just like this, right? She, she goes around, and she sloshes. That's what she does. I mean, it's not, I'm not being critical, but I'm getting really hot all of a sudden. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it feel, it's the same feeling I have when I'm being critical. Um, I just want you to know, Julie is the most biblical one of us because the Bible doesn't pick, there you go, the Bible doesn't say dip them. The Bible says stick them under the water and slosh them around. It really does. Here's what I'm trying to say. What the Bible is teaching you is don't just get baptized. The Bible is teaching you to live baptized. Live a baptized life. I was baptized in 1969. 
August 27th, 1969. I was eight years old. And I can still remember it was a Wednesday night. I'd been begging daddy to be baptized. I've told you all this story enough. I won't tell it again. But when he finally released me and said, okay, son, you can. I remember stepping out of the aisle. It was on a Wednesday night. Remember, they used to have devotionals on Wednesday nights. Stepped out of the aisle, took a step. The next step was faster. And by the time I had gotten to the front, I was in a full sprint. I couldn't, I, like, I couldn't get there fast enough. And I wanted to do it in front of the whole church. You know why? Because I understood that I was making a decision. I wanted the whole world to know this is who I am. This is what I'm going to be from now on. I drew the line in the sand. I said, this is who I'm going to be. And I'm not going to back down. Don't back down. In fact, as I said earlier, the worst kind of sin is to put your hand to the plow and then to back down. So in the lesson, I'm really sort of trying to challenge several of you to do a couple of things. First, if you've not been baptized and you're dating Jesus and it's time for you to get married, make the decision and receive baptism. But for the rest of you who maybe were baptized, but you've backed down or you've compromised, I'm not arguing you be baptized again, but I am arguing that you take back up your stand for Jesus and you say, I'm never going to back down again. The world's getting harder and harder for the Christian faith. We're going to be tested. We're going to be bullied. We're going to be marginalized and silenced and canceled and whatnot. And you need to make your mind up now. I was baptized when the devil comes to me and whispers to me all sorts of compromises. When he reminds me of my sins, I'm going to remind him that I was baptized. I'm married to King Jesus and I'll tell him where he can go. Because I was baptized. So live a baptized life. That's the sermon. Maybe I can put it in terms of that sweet, sweet, daring text at the end of the book of Joshua. Where Joshua and the Israelites are going into the land of promise. And last chapter of the book of Joshua. You know, he's about to die. He calls all the people together. And he gives them this final charge. He says, hey, you need to make a decision. Oh my goodness, what a text. It sends chills down my spine. You need to make a decision, he says. You're about to go into this land. You can serve the gods of the Egyptians whose land you left. You can serve the gods of the Amorites. They were, the, they were rough people, the Amorites. You can serve the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're entering. But you will be making a choice. Everybody in here, I'll make sure everybody in here knows. Like, I don't want to sound too heavy. I don't want to like, I'm not guilted. You don't, don't say I do until you're ready. But I want to make sure you understand. Everybody in this room is making a decision. You are making a decision. You, everybody in here has made a decision. You're making a decision. And every knee in this room is going to bow before Jesus. You know what's amazing? You're going to bow before Jesus, and Donald Trump's going to be bowed before Jesus right here, and Joe Biden's going to be bowing down to Jesus right there, and we're all going to be on our knees in front of him. And every mouth, every tongue in this room is going to confess that he is the Lord. You are making a decision. <laughs> I just say, choose the right decision. And when you're ready to sign the deal, then uh, you need to be baptized. Look, we'll do it now. We always keep the water ready. Call me this afternoon. We've got ministers. We've got elders. You have your small group leader, your father, your mother. I don't care who it is. When you say it's time, make a stand. Make a stand. And let the beauty of this gospel symbol work its way out in your life. Let's stand up and we'll sing.